You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. What an amazingly beautiful morning it is today. It is. And if you could see us, uh, Doolander audience, we're bathed in sunlight, which is Almost a rarity at the moment in Melbourne. It is. It's it's that uh, autumnal sun just rolling in through the windows, just cloaking one side of your face. <laughs> Looking good, mate. Looking good. Thank you. What, how's your week been? Uh, week has been pretty good. I've been back on the bike, building the quads up, mm. listening to a lot of podcasts. Mm. That's what you tend to do. When, when, not when I'm out on the road, but uh, when I'm on the stationary bike. Yeah. What have you been listening to? Uh, well, I listen to a few different things. Uh, the Howie Games, mm. which is Mark Howard's interviews with uh, sports people. Yep. People in and around it. It's a goodie. It is a goodie. Yep. Uh, I listen to this little podcast called The Doolanders, just to make sure that I've listened to the episodes. <laughs> yes. <right>. Good. Get, <laughs> um, our, get our uh, listens up. Nice. Yep. Um, I listen to... The, st- uh, the one stuff you should know. Mm. You just learn weird and wonderful facts, and yeah. And I also listen to uh, the Daily every now and then if there's something interesting. And Tony Martin Sizzle Town. Oh, Sizzle t- Tony. Yeah. Geez, he's been doing some great stuff for a long time, hasn't he? He has. Talking about doing some great stuff mm. for a long time. One of my favourite go-to podcasts, mm. Conversations. Yep. This week's guest, Callie Reardon, is the, you could almost call her the godmother <laughs> yeah. of podcasts in Australia. Mate, tell us a little bit about Kelly. Well, as you said, Kelly is, was instrumental in creating uh, podcasting in, in this country and it all started with conversations. Uh, you'll hear in this episode how she had to convince her boss to buy an MP3 player. Yeah. And he was questioning, what is that? Yeah, that's right. And having to convince the ABC uh, bigwigs that people will want to uh, listen to to these interviews on their own time. Yeah. This is going back almost two decades. So yeah, it's, it's quite yeah. amazing. And I think what you'll find is Kelly really has the ability to make things happen. She does. She yeah. hustled her way into many things. She hustled her way out of some situations. Yeah. Yep. And look, I think what you'll find out, Blake, is you'll – you'll work out why Kelly lives in fear that one day she'll receive an invoice for a chopper. A chopper ride. Yeah, <laughs> she she does live in fear of that. Yeah, she's an amazing woman and who, who has done some amazing things. And she says that what she's really been great at over the course of her career is working with creative people and getting them to bring the best version of themselves out and into their work. Yep, she's quite incredible. She is. Here's Kelly. Blake, do you like stories of people doing? I love stories of people doing, Nick. Well, if you out there like stories of people doing and you want us to make more stories of people doing, then like this podcast, subscribe and tell your mates because the more people we have listening, the more episodes we can make and that's better for everyone out there who's doing or wants to do. And as Arnold would say, do it. But he said I'll be back.
Hey, Kelly, welcome to the Doolanders. It is an absolute treat for us to have someone of your clout, your podcasting clout on the Doolanders. How are you doing? I'm very well. It's good to be here. I love what you guys are doing. Lots of inspirational people on your podcast. So it's been um, a real thrill for me to come along and join. That's a pretty big thrill for us because we've been listening to your podcast as well <laughs> since it started up last year. So welcome. Yeah, we'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> we always like to ask our guests, uh, can you please tell us what do you do? What do I do? Such a big question, Blake. Um, it is a big one. Yep. I think that I help creative people have a voice and tell interesting stories and kind of be the best version of themselves as they can behind a microphone. But I also try to be a pretty great friend and wife and mother to my two young girls. Um, and I also like to be involved in my community. So I'm involved in, you know, sport and school and things like that. So I am a busy lady doing lots of things. <laughs> yeah, you, you sure would be busy because, you know, and we'll get to the uh, how it all happened. But last year you created Dead Set Studios and you've created your very own uh, podcast called Curveball. You were actually with the ABC for 20 years. You had this steady job, steady income, and now you're this entrepreneur, you're your own startup, and basically you're it. How's it changed your energy to what you do? Yeah, I made a pretty bold choice, to be honest. I just got to that point in my career where, you know, I was in a great leadership role running a really exciting team. Um, but I had always just had this little sort of thought in my head that I'd love to run something of my own. And 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, seemed like the good time to chuck in my stable job. <laughs> um, so I... You know, I had to make a, a, a lot of fast decisions for numerous reasons. I had been offered another job um, and I was contemplating taking that, but I also thought, oh, maybe there's a chance I could start something of my own up. And so I made a, a fairly quick decision. And I think sometimes in life, you know, I'd sort of pondered it probably for 12 to 18 months, to be honest. Um, but when it came to the crunch for various reasons, I had to make the decision very quickly. And so after sort of 20 years at the ABC, I decided to set up my own podcast consultancy and production house. And, and that's pretty big because running a production company is a kind of a high risk, high reward sort of company. Um, so I so knew. Just, sorry, on that, what do you mean by that high risk, high reward well, like that production company? Yeah, making a creative work is expensive and there's no guarantee that it's going to work. And so like running a record company or a television production company, you're usually pouring money into an idea and a concept and you're hoping like hell that it works. And the economics on podcasting, particularly in Australia, which is a small market, are not fantastic unless you're, yeah. you know, in the top 2% of shows really. So um, I knew that I would have to do some other consulting and strategy work to sort of keep the doors open. But fortunately, I was in a position in the market where there aren't 
you know, loads of people who really understand the global podcast space. So it's sort of a hybrid model of those two things. And I um, run a couple of different productions, including Curveball. Um, but I also work with other organisations to create their podcasts. And into 2021, I'm increasingly looking at sort of original podcast commissions with, you know, media houses or platforms. Nice. Um, we are going to delve into that in a little bit more detail shortly. But you you actually grew up in the sun-filled streets of the Gold Coast. You're one of four kids. Your father was a solicitor and your mother, she did a bunch of different things uh, other than holding the, the family together. And they had, from our discussions, that a fair bit of entrepreneurial flair in their business adventures, didn't they? Yeah, it's been interesting to reflect on that given my journey in the last 12 months because in my mind growing up, you know, my life was pretty stable. My parents had, you know, fairly stable jobs and careers. But actually um, the four of us children, there's sort of two boys and then sort of an eight-year gap and then two girls. And so when my brothers were young, my dad was running his own solicitor's practice on the Gold Coast and mum was doing the books there and helping run the business. But my dad, I think, wasn't didn't love that. Um, I think he thought that his life was pretty much trying to solve other people's problems um, right. and that gets a bit tedious. So they then did a whole number of quite interesting things, which now that I reflect back, I go, oh, yeah, they were quite entrepreneurial. So they ran some indoor cricket centres in the 80s. I love it. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time in indoor cricket centres. We both have, actually. We have. Yeah. Um, and that went for a while and my mum ran a, a sports shop for a while and then my dad went into real estate and, um, you know, they ended up working at ANZ Bank. Um, they then bought a real estate business themselves, which didn't really go too well, so they sold that. And so they have done a whole number of things over the years um, and, you know, reinvented themselves a few times. And so it's been interesting to reflect on um you know, for me, I've had this very stable career and a steady income and mm. sort of almost like that public service mentality that you have in a bureaucracy like the ABC. So to flip to this much uh, more inconsistent uh, sort of life is kind of interesting. But I, I've reflected on how much mum and dad have always just been like, do what you want to do, do what you love, take a risk, it'll work out. Like I think my mum and dad are ultimately um, quite positive people and yeah. believe that things will just work out. And so they're, you know, whenever I've gone, oh, should I do this or should I do that? Generally speaking, they'd be like, yes, you should do it. And like, what's the worst that can happen? Um, so I guess that's helped me in life make some, you know, bold decisions along the way at different times. And I guess that feeling and that reflection would would be helping you more than ever right now, given what you're creating. Yeah, because it has been very, very scary. Um, I mean, if you spoke to me in the first three months, <laughs> it would have been a <laughs> yeah. different – I kind of was on the floor quite a bit. Um, <laughs> because what, what, Praying or <laughs> – You know, just in a general state of collapse. No, um, I think – because it's big, right, and I literally yeah. – closed my laptop in my lounge room, which is a weird mm. way to finish a career. Like normally if you're in the office, there's a morning tea and people kind of celebrate and they give you a gift and it's all very lovely. But I kind of quite literally sat 
in my lounge room and closed my laptop and couriered it back to the ABC and that was kind of the end of, you know, 20 years of working in a place I absolutely love and and is very core to my sense of self. So it took a while to sort of work out, well, who am I without that job and, and, you know, am I just that job? Am I more than that job? Um, and so, you know, and also just going, oh my God, what have I done? Like my superannuation and, you know, all the stuff that you do. (laughs) Um, but you know, now sort of eight, nine months on, I can reflect and say, you know, I had to go on that journey. I had to be sad and grieve a part of my career that was over and the people that I worked with every day who I adored. And I had to sort of do some work on who I am outside of that and Mm. pick myself up eventually and go, okay, I have all these skills. I'm still a great creative leader. I'm channeling it in a different way. It's going to take some time. I think the thing I've had to learn the most is patience because I'm not a very patient person. I am fast moving. I usually think of, I'm a bit of an ideas machine. And when I think of an idea, I'll be like, right guys, we're doing this. And then we sort of make it happen. And and the people make it happen, not me usually, but I'm the one driving and, and kind of going, I've got some energy around this. I think this is what we need to do. Now I'm the IT department, the accounts department, you know, producing the show, hosting the shows, doing the work. So I have to be a little more patient with how much time everything takes. There's a lot of conversations with yourself. Hey, I've got this great idea. Okay, you, you better go and do that. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm working with some great contractors. So I do get to oh, talk good. to other human beings. <laughs> that's good. Okay, so talking about who you are and, and what you do, when you reflect um, about your when you're a teenager, you know, journalism was of interest. You did some work experience at CFM on the Gold Coast. Um, <laughs> what, what attracted you to journalism? Was it the storytelling, the truth seeking, creating platforms for change? What What was it? I mean, I think it was all of those things through the prism of a 16-year-old's eyes. So maybe like the platform for change, I hadn't quite kind of really worked that out yet. But I certainly, you know, I loved English and history and drama. And so I was always going to be in a humanities, writing, speaking sort of world. And so journalism seemed to combine all of those things. But I certainly had a passion for telling stories and truth and facts and sort of all the things that you learn when you're doing um you know, like history at school and all of those things. And so once I got a taste for that at CFM on the Gold Coast and um, and I did some work what, experience. What was your work experience there, by the way? So I think I did Anything a week. It was like I was in year 10 and, um, you know, it was mostly they're reading news bulletins and putting stories together and, and you might have gone out on a job with the radio journalist and, you know, got to ask some questions and things. Um, and I was very prepared. Um, So I made sure I'd read the paper that morning and I had some good ideas for stories and all those sorts of things. And it's the same. I did work experience at Channel 9 on the Gold Coast when I was at university and at the ABC. And every time I went in sort of super prepared and also hoping that a big story would break. So I remember sitting, Channel 9 said to me, can you drive a car? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, have you got a like, so you've got a license? And I said, yeah. I think I was by that stage, I was about 21 or 20 or something. And they said, oh, we've got, a, we've got one of the cars in to be serviced. And so if the cameraman and you drive there, then you can drive one of the cars back. And this would never happen now because you'd like not be insured or something. 
But we got in the car and I turned to the cameraman. So there, there was no other journo. Normally when you went out, it was with a journo and a cameraman and you just observed what they did. But I was in the car with a cameraman and no journo. So the first thing I do to him is turn to him and go, let's hope a big story breaks because <laughs> that's what I'm hoping for. And, of course, you know, something came across the, the you know, the scanner in the car saying there's been a, you know, shark attack. I'm using inverted quotes because I think shark attack in a Gold Coast canal, uh, you know, attack is a little strong. Like I think think someone spotted a fin in the canals of the Gold Coast. But he turned to me and he went, yeah, you're right, we're on. And so we got down there and I, you know, got to interview the resident who'd seen the shark. Um, So, you know, my goal was always just to try to, you know, prove that I could do something behind the microphone or, or find a story or tell a story. Yeah. And on that theme of telling stories, the, the theatre also um, called your name, didn't it, at some stage? Yeah, I mean, I think because I was interested in uh, performance and stories, the other natural place for me was to end up in theatre or film. And, and I did really well at theatre at school. And so I, at the same time, I'd won a scholarship to go to Bond University to study journalism, but I'd got into um, the acting course at QUT in Brisbane, which was quite hard to get into straight out of school. Most people audition a few years in a row before they get in, and so it's usually people who are 23 and 24. So I got in, not not because I wanted to be an actor, I more wanted to be a director, I think. But I sort of thought, oh yeah, well, maybe I should do that, and I got in and that sounds fun. So I let the journalism scholarship go worth, Whoa. you know, a lot of money. Headed off to drama school, you know, pretty naive, fresh uh, 17-year-old at the time when I started university. And the first thing we had to do was go on a camp. So there's like 200 kids in acting school, kids, well, young adults, um, up in, you know, the Gold Coast hinterland for this camp for three days. And it was I mean, it was kind of crazy for a naive 17-year-old because people were more worldly than me, probably had smoked, definitely smoked more drugs than I ever had at that point, <laughs> which was like yep. none. And, you know, were kind of artsy and bohemian and whatever. And they made us do this exercise where we had to stand in this room in the dark at night and close our eyes and walk around and feel each other's faces. (laughs) (laughs) I I laugh because I spent a lot of time in drama school. There was a lot of that. There was, wasn't there, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, this, I can't do this. (laughs) What have I done? I have literally thrown in a $30,000 scholarship at Bond University to study journalism And I got back to Brisbane and I just thought, I've got to quit. And I was two weeks into university and I've dropped out. Like I was a straight A student (laughs) at high school and I'm a uni dropout by week two. But I just did what any, I guess, self-respecting journalist would do, which was to hustle. And so I called the QUT journalism school three weeks into semester. So places have gone out months ago, you know, courses have been filled and I say, I, I get, I go, I have to, can I speak to the head of journalism at QT, please? Like I probably had to get through three people before he picked up the call and then exp- did this whole story about, I really want to be a journalist and I was going to do this scholarship at Bond, but I then went to acting school, but that's been a disaster. But I did work experience at CFM on the Gold Coast and I really want to be a journalist and can I get into your course? 
course and essentially talked my way into the course and started in sort of week five of semester. Um, and that's how I became a journalist. And, and when you – that <laughs> is – that is well, it, as you said, it's all about hustle, isn't it? And I th- there's a real theme to what you've created throughout your career. It's that ability to – make things happen and cl- clearly you were taking uh you weren't taking no for an answer <laughs> when when you think about that time at at bond did it did it solidify for you that that was the career for you because it was also music played a really big part in your life and in your in your family's life and you know um did that was there also a career in music that that you wanted to pursue yeah, I mean, I think for the three years of the journalism course, and I, I did do it at QUT in the end, I, um, I I wavered between I want to be a journalist, oh, no, this is really hard. And I think it was the struggle between a certain type of journalist because you had to learn to be that sort of foot-in-the-door journalist that you would be in commercial television or whatever and turn up at a roadside accident and all those things that you do when you're sort of a reporter starting out, which didn't really sit comfortably with me. So Mm. I did struggle a little bit about, you know, the more exploitative part of journalism versus what I wanted to do. But I persevered and I'm glad that I did because it it gave me a lot of great skills. But I was, you know, interested in music as well and did some music journalism while I was at university at the local street press. And my brother, you know, both my brothers were in bands and my sister was studying to be a sound engineer at the conservatorium. And so, you know, we were around music a lot. And um, so I started my career actually at the ABC on the Gold Coast when I left uni, but I was there for sort of, you know, a year and a half. And then I got an opportunity to work for Warner Music. And I thought, oh my God, how fantastic. Like mm. it's your dream, right? You're sort of 22. Yeah. You're going to hang around with rock stars all day. You love music. Like I was always at gigs. So cool. And I got this job as a publicist with Warner Music and and in in many ways it was great. Like I got to hang out with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and, you know, there were some wow. cool things that happened. But it was also awful. Like I actually – it's the first time I learned, ooh, actually I'm not really enjoying this and I kind of hate my job and had that feeling on a Sunday night of, oh, God, do I have to go to work tomorrow? And it was really that the passion – for music was killed by the fact that I was now working in it. And, of course, you end up working with a whole lot of bands you don't like and you hate their music and they're kind of annoying and despicable and you're walking into commercial radio stations to try and get music on the radio and at that time in the early 90s or mid-90s, you know, it had a particular culture. And your job was to turn up sometimes at 2 in the morning and see Mr. Bungle scream into a microphone. You're like, I'd just rather be at home in bed. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard of Mr. Bungle. (laughs) Well, let me tell you, yeah, you don't, you kind of, you you learn that every job has like the glamorous bits and the yucky bits and the yucky bits um, outweighed the great bits. And so I decided, oh, this isn't really for me and ended up, you know, by that point, deciding to go overseas and work for a while. Yeah. So take us to a place overseas. Uh, You were in Turkey. You had met your boyfriend, Matt. And 
a really pivotal moment in in both of your lives um, came about. Talk, talk to us what happened and how you how you navigated um, your way out of that. We were doing the working holiday thing that so many Aussies do where we worked um, for a newspaper in Scotland and then, you know, save up your money and go and travel. And so we were on a bit of a travelling adventure through Europe and, yeah, we were in rural Turkey and it was 2001. So this is before, like, we certainly didn't have mobile phones um, with us and, you know, you had to go to – what was that cafe called? Like it was like an internet cafe if you wanted to email someone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> easy cafe or easy everything or whatever it was called. Um, so, you know, you're, you're pretty out of touch with um, your family and your friends. So my then boyfriend, now husband, had an accident in Turkey and he actually broke his back and it took us some time to figure out both how bad – the injury was and then also to get to a hospital because to get to a hospital, you know, we had to go on this bumpy kind of bus ride and we weren't sure how that was going to go and we didn't think to do something like call an ambulance because we weren't quite sure like he could walk but he was in a lot of pain and so we didn't we weren't really thinking oh he's fractured his spine in in two different ways which he had so the first hospital he got to um you know it was very confronting because it was like don't cough, don't roll over, don't sneeze because you have both a compression fracture, which is a relatively common spinal injury if you, you know, fall or something like that. But he also had an unstable fracture where, you know, two pieces of your spine around your spinal cord are sort of fractured and therefore that bone is kind of loose. And there proceeded this ridiculous kind of 72 hours of trying to deal with insurance companies, trying to just get a line out to call my parents or or Matt's parents was incredibly difficult. Um, You know, we didn't know where we were going. We didn't know if we would be chopped out to back to the UK or to Australia or to Istanbul. And Mm. so it was a very, very confronting, strange time because he was – you know, we really didn't know if things were going to be okay. Like I I can distinctly remember ringing my mum eventually getting through to her and sort of saying, I think you might need to take out a second mortgage on the house because if we get chopped out here and the insurance company doesn't cover this, because, you know, insurance companies always try to get out of it. (laughs) Um, We could be in real strife here. Anyway, um. It took a while, but eventually they sort of people ran into the room at one point and were like, you're being choppered out. And we were like, to where? And they're like, we don't know. And I was like, when? And they're like, now. And so we just grabbed, I grabbed our backpacks and kind of packed up our bags and in my sort of, you know, backpack on my front, I just put everything essential like passports, film that we had taken because, of course, this is a day in like actual cameras. Um, you know, essential things and then just our stuff in the back, thinking to myself, if for some reason I lose everything and if I just hang on to this one backpack, I'll be okay. You know, we got wheeled out of the hospital. Matt's flat on his back. He can't see anything but the ceiling. And so I'm constantly saying to him, okay, we're going down a corridor where it like, looks like we're at the front. Oh, there's an ambulance there. You know, we all sorts of crazy things happen. Like the the – Glass doors of the hospital opened. We walked out and a payphone near the front of the hospital rang and someone picked it up and went, oh, it's for you. (laughs) 
and I was like, and it was the it was Out the Australian <laughs> embassy. I know it was really it really was crazy. But what happened was we got the ambulance started to take off without me because I was on the phone to the embassy, so I had to run after the ambulance, bang on the back of the ambulance and go, whoa, 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 like, you know, stop. Got in the ambulance. It took us to a soccer pitch where they cleared the pitch from, like, little kids that were playing soccer and a chopper arrived on the middle of the soccer pitch. And I thought to myself, okay, we're in a chopper, so that like, we're not going to London or Australia in a chopper, right? So we must be going somewhere else in Turkey, but I didn't know where. Eventually the chopper, you know, the blades are whirring. Someone jumps out of the chopper. No one speaks English. They're basically saying Matt is getting on the chopper and I'm not. And they're like going, you're not, you're not on the chopper. This is all in hand signals, right? You're not on the chopper. And I'm going. Where are you? I'm on the chopper and I'm pointing to the (laughs) chopper. I'm going in the chopper. And that went on for a while. And then they wouldn't let me have the bags. And I was like, these bags are on the chopper. (laughs) So I talked my way onto the chopper. Um, Not still, we still didn't know where we were going. And eventually we went down and what I could see was another small city. And we'd, we'd come from Istanbul. So I knew it wasn't Istanbul. And we landed in this place and I still didn't know where we were going. We had no information, no mobile phones. Eventually I found out we were being put put on a Turkish Airlines flight to Istanbul, but again, there was no seat for me. So I'm running around the airport trying to figure out how I'm going to get on this flight. Anyway, the long story short is we eventually end up in Istanbul um, at that point not having kind of really slept more than three or four hours in 72, you know, not having eaten. By the time we got to Istanbul, like I vomited because it was by that point so stressful and I'd had so little sleep and it was all, it kind of just hit me once we got there. So Matt ended up having to have surgery in Istanbul and then we had to come home to have more surgery. He's completely fine now, um, so really... um, you know, we were well looked after. But again, I did a lot of things to hustle for good information. Like I ended up, I was so pushy with the um, surgeon at the hospital around how this was all going to go down that he ended up getting this professor from, you know, Istanbul University to come and oversee the operation. Like I was 22, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But I was just hustling for it, talk, trying to get information, trying to talk my way to the best possible solution. Um, and we, we had a choice about whether to fly back to London at one point and have the surgery there. So we had to make some very difficult decisions. Like, do we take the risk of potentially possibly better surgery, but but the risk of being on a plane again um, versus do we take a risk that we're going to have a successful surgery on his spine in Istanbul? Mm. So, mm. You know, it taught me a lot about, you know, resilience, not taking no for an answer, pushing your way through things, asking good questions and, you know, also realising that at any moment you can have this sliding doors moment and your your world can quite literally be tipped upside down. And so when things have got hard in my life beyond that in some way, mm. you know, it's good to reflect back and go, oh, man, there was a moment there where I thought my husband was going to be in a wheelchair and it was going to cost us $200,000 to be choppered out, you know. So you 
you hold on to those things sometimes when things are dark and you think you can't overcome something and you go, of course I can overcome this because yeah. I overcame that. And, yeah. you know, I think it's a good, it's a good thing to have happen in your life in some ways to be able to reflect back on. Yeah, that, that is amazing. Do you remind Matt of the reason why he's walking is because of you? <laughs> I try not to rub that in. Um, <laughs> you should use it. Uh, I mean, he would say, you know, Kelly absolutely sort of talked, you know, if there was a person that you're going to have by your side in that situation, I mean, he would have been uh, wonderful as well if it were me. I mean, I think luckily it wasn't a bloody accident. I don't think I would have been yeah. so good if it was some traumatic, you know, <laughs> motorcycle accident with blood and guts because I'm not so good with that. Um, so, yeah, I mean... It, Anyone would do the best they could in that situation. It's just that I had a few skills in being able to advocate for us. Mm. Do you ever do you, do you live in fear that one day you're going to get a letter arrive at your doorstep for chopper invoice? <laughs> you know, <laughs> one the, times chopper the, plus twenty years interest. <laughs> the one um, sort of regret or thing that I wish for around that is. What actually happened was Matt ended up going to hospital on his own because we couldn't figure out how to me to manage all of our bags and it's a long story. But anyway, I ended up getting to the hospital later and so I turned up at a hotel room and was told in this sort of Turkish English that my husband was still in hospital and I thought what was going to happen is he was going to go to the hospital. They were going to say, you're actually okay and he was going to be at the hotel when I got there. So when he wasn't there... And this person tried to tell me he was still in hospital. That is the moment at which I fell apart a bit because I was like, oh, okay, this is bad. And called a taxi. And the taxi driver who drove me to the hospital was amazing. Didn't speak English. I obviously didn't speak Turkish. I was crying. He was handing me tissues and kind of patting me on the shoulder. If I could find that taxi driver today, Mm. I would just love to tell him his generosity and kindness in that moment still sits with me today. And, I, you know, I just think back about that guy and think he knew nothing of me or what the problem was, but he was so comforting for that 15-minute taxi ride. And I just wish I could find him. And I've often thought I should do a podcast series where I try and find that man. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I want to hear that. <laughs> Super cool. Yeah, it's just genuine care. All right. We're going to switch gears in the theme of making stuff happen. So you joined the ABC and like you've absolutely been instrumental in creating this industry that is all things podcast. And, I, you know, I think I'm not sure if you're titled, but you were basically headed up the ABC's podcast team. Take us back to when iRivers and MP3 players were a thing and what was it that you actually – set to set out to create yeah I mean I got into podcasting in the wild west days um, which was in some ways a happy accident I was a producer of radio at that time and Mm. in 2005 I was producing what was then a state-based radio show called Conversations and it was with Richard Feidler who was living in Brisbane at the time and so we went out across Queensland and it was a long form interview that I prepared a research brief for and I 
I took a lot of care in structuring the narrative around the kind of 55 minutes that you have to tell that story. And and the hallmarks of the way I prepared that still exist in that show today. It's been taken to a whole nother level by amazing people who came after me. But the idea of how you tell sort of a three-part story across the hour remains very important on that show. But what also happened was another colleague of mine called Ray Allen, who um, is just this magnificent stalwart in the ABC, um, he said, look, you're doing all this preparation and it's this really great long-form content. And there's this new thing called an MP3 file that you can post to the internet. And so what if we experimented with, you know, posting that file to the internet and then people could listen to it later? Like they don't have to wait for 11 a.m. in the morning. If they miss it, they could hear it at 4 p.m. that afternoon. Now, look, all of this sounds so quaint now, but in 2005, that was like a, (laughs) that was just revolutionary. And so... I had to convince, I had to learn a bit of code from Ray so that I could work out how to do it. And then I had to convince the station manager at the time to buy me this thing called an iRiver because uh, this was before the iPod um, to make sure that it was working. Um, and so, and he was like, oh, God, Kelly, it's going to cost like $250 for this iRiver thing to do something <laughs> yeah. that you're doing in the corner that I don't even know what it is. Um, but you know, it it was the beginning of that podcast and we grew it. You know, we probably started with five listeners and then we had, you know, a hundred listeners and then, you know, we, we grew it. And then towards the end of that year, we took the show national and um, we started to build up the podcast. And, you know, Richard has this amazing producer, Pam O'Brien, who took over for me, who just, you know, launched it into the next stratosphere. And and the happy thing for me as well, because that show is so beloved by so many Australians and by me, um, was that when I set up the podcast, the digital first podcast team, because what Conversations is, is, is a radio show and a podcast. But later, once kind of 2014, 2015 came around and and iPods existed and podcasting became a thing and there was this big moment around Serial um, when it launched, I was saying to the ABC, we should do podcasts that don't go on the radio. They're just made for podcasts and they're digital first and they're fit for platform, they're native. They sound different to the radio and they don't have a set time and we're not shackled to the schedule. So we set up. ABC Audio Studios um, to create a whole lot of great podcasts. But one of the things I said was, you know, I want conversations back in my team because I think as the as Australia's biggest podcast, you know, you can't have a podcast team at the ABC without that team. And so happily they became part of um, my team again. So I got, I got to manage them again, which is um, so great. Nice. Uh, you think about back to conversations, it's sort of defied all of the um – Every local radio convention at the time, it was, you know, that longer format. Why did it work? And when when that kernel of an idea came to you and you were you created that, what was it that you thought, this is something that will resonate? It did defy a lot of conventions because on local radio at the time, anything that was going beyond seven minutes was long. Um, so a 55-minute conversation with one person it, it was a few things that we identified and I could notice early on. So one was around a narrative structure. Like I, I pre-interviewed the guests to dig around their story and find out what was interesting and we told it in 
Because when you're doing a seven-minute breakfast interview, your job is to get to the key facts as quickly as possible. But with this, what I had to do was flip my thinking and kind of work out where to place different plot points across the hour so that there would be both a logical structure to the interview where things flowed, but also there was enough interest through the hour to keep people glued to it. The other Mm. thing that I noticed early on, and, and Richard Feidler talks about this quite a bit, is... I noticed that, sure, the big name guests, you know, people were interested if, you know, um, Kylie Minogue was on the show or whoever it was. But actually what resonated with the listeners were ordinary people with extraordinary stories. And I kept yeah. saying to Richard, we've they're harder to find, they're harder to prep, um, but we've got to keep going with these ordinary people who just something magical has happened to them, something interesting, there's been a quirk in their life, a twist, you know, much like my story in Turkey. They've got this story of something that's changed them and transformed them. Mm. And so that idea of transformation of a person was important as well. So we cre- created this brief structure Um, that had to sort of tick a few boxes, you know, a bit of a matrix, if you like, of it's got to have plot points, the person has to go on a bit of a journey, there's got to be a twist. And that just really resonated with people. And still today, you know, when the podcast does many millions of downloads every single month, like it is a juggernaut, um, still when I go through the analytics and I look at which episodes are working, it just always makes me smile when it's some – cow cocky from Barcaldon who, you know, has done something extraordinary, hiked through the wilderness to, you know, rescue someone or whatever's happened. And those stories really resonate. And both Sarah Konoski, who co-presents with Richard now, mm. um, and Richard really do understand that it's it's a mix of um, of storytelling of great characters and real people. Yeah. It is, it is a – it's art. Like, it really is. And what um – Richard and Sarah have done with that concept is quite amazing. They just transport you into that moment uh, and it is a beautiful thing. Um, you have produced some absolutely amazing shows. Like it, I'll just rattle off a few. So Conversations, Ladies, We Need to Talk with Yumi Signs, The 11th, you put me onto that um, the other day, that political history podcast which is an absolute cracker listen to a couple of those short and curly the pineapple project crossbred judith lucy overwhelmed and dying so what's the process how do you how does it all work how do these these bits of magical bits of art get pushed out into the world yeah, it's such a good question because each show is different, but I think there are some key things that we're always looking for when I'm commissioning a show. You, What we're trying to do at the ABC is different to other people in the market. So I'm always looking for a story that's distinctive or unusual in some way. Um, we're not trying to replicate what the rest of the market does. Um you know, we have a slate of kids shows, we have a slate of comedy shows, narrative, true crime, etc. And you're looking for a couple of things, you know, your host has got to be really authentic. And it's different to radio, it's different to TV, you want a host that can tell a story not perform. So you're looking for someone who's really authentic, they're very comfortable behind the microphone, and they can carry a story across eight or 10 episodes. Um, 
You're also looking for, if you're doing a sort of a limited run series like The 11th, which tells the story of the dismissal of Gough Whitlam, you need to make sure there's multiple characters, that there's scenes that you can kind of recreate, there's tape, you know, have we got archival material and can we spin this story across seven or eight episodes? Because one of the questions I famously ask is, yeah, but what happens in episode seven? Because one of the things that when people pitch to us, they'll pitch a great concept, but it's just a concept or a story that's worth one episode. It's like it's a one-hour documentary. There's nowhere else to go with it. So we need stories that have multiple interesting characters. Like if I think about Snowball, which was part of our Unravel True Crime strand, um, one of the things that got me across the line on it was – it tells the story of a of a con woman who swindles this New Zealand family out of a whole lot of money. But the, the Kiwi family, like they're all gold. The dad is a certain kind of flight of the Concords kind of character and the mum is just like this down-to-earth, super honest, you know. And the boys, the three brothers have this thing going on. And so they're all really compelling characters in and of themselves. So you're looking for a whole lot of things. And then the other thing that we do a lot um, is – We look at audience research. We're very much trying to commission shows the audience actually wants. So, um, well, I mean, it it sounds (laughs) like duh, but actually, a lot. Mm. A lot of podcasts, a lot of radio shows, a lot of television shows get made because someone has an idea. An idea is not enough for me. It we have to have a great idea, a great host, a good story. But we also have to know that the audience actually wants a show for women in their 30s and 40s about health and sexuality. And that's how we came up with Ladies We Need to Talk was because Mm. the ABC didn't have a lot of women in their 30s and 40s listening to ABC audio content because they might listen to Triple J, but then they – we kind of lose them until they come back and listen to local radio or Radio National when they're 50. But in the middle, what are we doing? And they wanted to talk about this sort of stuff, you know, like what it's like to um, – like all the topics that we do in Ladies We Need to Talk. So it, it's part sexuality but it's part relationships as well, like navigating who who's doing the, the workload at home and work-life balance and having kids and all of that through to, you know, your sex life's – gone down the toilet what are we doing about that the taboo conversations that you know none of us are really having so we look for an audience opportunity or a gap and we go oh actually no one in the market is doing this um, similarly with the comedy slate with shows like Crossbred and the Judith Lucy show and Finding Drago we know that young men kind of in their 30s are really interested in comedy content and so what mm. can we give them in that space yeah super cool um I've got so many questions about podcasts, but I, like I was looking through the things that you've done throughout your career at the ABC, and you actually, and I think you say that you this is what part of uh, what Deadset Studios does today. You're a specialist air checker for the uninitiated. What is a specialist air checker? <laughs> air checking is a term that is used in radio where you uh, um, somebody who is experienced in radio sits down with a radio host 
and you listen to tape together and you air check it. So you you go, okay, how was your intro? Was it well scripted? Was it compelling? Did it draw the listener in? How did we go in that interview? Did you ask open questions? Oh, here it kind of fell flat. Why is that? Um, so it's used it's used a lot in commercial radio. Um, you know, those guys get air checked like to within an inch of their life every yeah. morning or every second morning. Um, at the ABC, we tend to do it to a different cadence. It might be once a fortnight or something like that. But but your role is also to just um, support the presenter because being behind a microphone every single day is really tough. Like people don't realise how much you have to give of yourself, how much energy you have to have, how much um, work goes into being energetic on a breakfast show every single day when there's no stories happening or nothing exciting's going on. So your job is also to coach and mentor those presenters and make them feel the most comfortable they can be behind a microphone. When people are starting out, they think they have to be some certain type of radio person. And I was the same when I, I mean, if you listen to the tapes that I did when I was in my early 20s, they're just Awful, right? <laughs> Awful. Yep. It takes yeah. a while to find your voice and to mm. be really comfortable behind a microphone and just be yourself. And also it's kind of unhelpful feedback to go, just be yourself. Well, we've all got different selves. You know, the self I yeah. am at the school gate versus the self I am in the workplace versus the self I am with my husband. Like they're all different. But you're trying to be the closest you are to the way you interact in real life Um you want to bring that on the radio as well. Like no one wants a performance. Radio is an intimate, you know, one-to-one medium as is podcasting. And so you want to be as authentic behind the microphone as possible. And so your job as an air checker is to develop and nurture that from somebody and help them find that voice. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, we need one of those for sure. Um, <laughs> so, so 500 bucks an hour, fellas. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure we need one, Nick, do we? No. Go for um, the 10-minute option. Yeah. <laughs> You've had this amazing 20-year career at the ABC and you would have had some time whilst you are on the floor last year to um, reflect on that career. When you stand back and look at it, what are you most proud of? Um, two things. One is pretty much my whole career and you know, conversations, podcast in a time when there were no podcasts is a good example. Mm. I've always pushed into the new spaces. So I was, you know, I worked in the digital newsroom, uh, putting the news on the internet in 1997 when that newsroom was like four people. Um, so I was really early convert to the sort of digital future for media. And so I've always pushed people, you know, one of the first radio stations to be on Twitter and then, you know, going into podcasting in a digital first way or whatever it was, I've always pushed the boundaries of what's possible and kept up with trends and technologies. And what could we do on a smart speaker? And I'm always interested in what the next thing is. So that... Um, because it takes a, in the ABC, which is a big bureaucracy, um, it takes a while to get people to go on that journey. Um, and yeah. also because everyone's busy just doing the core business and then you turn around and go, you've got to do some blogging now or whatever. Um, so I hope I model and bring people on the journey with that. And I guess the second thing is just I have had the privilege to – work with a lot of people and kind of see them go on and do bigger and better things. So to enable people to have good careers or give them an opportunity on, um, you know, a show, 
you know, I spoke to Nina Capel yesterday and Nina worked on the 11th and she was a pretty new kind of audio producer at that stage, but she's gone on to get a job with SBS The Feed. So she's doing great nice. things and it's always yeah. joyful when I see somebody go and do something amazing. So so that's the other thing I'm proud of is, you know, launching or setting people on a, on a path to greater success. That's super cool. You know, helping people to reach their potential and beyond their, you know, wildest dreams. So, um, yeah, that's amazing. Tell us what what was it like for you? You're, you know, you're a woman in the industry. You had two kids. You know, t- talk to us. What was it like to – was it difficult um, to navigate things like, you know, work-life balance, different responsibilities as you had as, as you had your kids? Could you walk back into the ABC and continue from where you left off? Or, you know, how did, how did that um, transpire throughout your career there? Um, it was actually difficult for me. Um, I'd like to hope this doesn't happen now. And my kids aren't that old, like, you know, they're 10 and 12. Um, but it was actually difficult for me. So I became a metropolitan um, radio station director when I was relatively young, so female, kind of 27. So you, you're managing people who are older than you, who've been around longer than you. Um, but when I had my first child, I went on maternity leave. I sort of came back uh, four days a week was the best I could get them to. Um, but the second, with the second child, I wanted to come back part-time. And by that point, I had two children, obviously, and I, I didn't want to come back four days. I wanted to sort of job share with somebody and I proposed mm. a job share and I found the person and all of that. But I was told that, um, you know, they didn't see this particular management role as a job share scenario and that I would have to come back full-time. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be a present parent. And so actually what ended up transpiring, it was all very difficult and messy and horrible. Um, But I had to be moved out of that management role into another role. Uh, I, I lost 20 grand off my salary and I was demoted from sort of the top of my band to the bottom of my band. Crazy stuff. Which... I know, right? And yeah. I'm pretty sure I could have taken them to fair work. But at the time they would they did things like say, well, you're still within the band and this is a different role and you can take that other role, you just have to be full time. So um, I found it very difficult because my husband actually works at the ABC and, you know, mm. our careers have sort of moved up in parallel but suddenly, you know, it's me having to have those tedious conversations and me having to try and propose – you know, and I, I did as much work as I could to propose different models I thought could work, like I was proactive. But unfortunately, you know, the the management at the time and, and the HR manager were not supportive of me um, having a flexible way to work in my role. And it took me a while to get over that. I, I had to move sideways and sort of downwards. Um and look, that took me off on another path and ended up working out okay in the long term. But for the first year, it was really difficult because I kind of was resentful and angry and felt like I was on a, you know, a sideways or downwards trajectory. Um it became a little bit more difficult later on as well. Even once I was back full time, the ABC wanted me to move up into sort of higher roles in Sydney. Um, 
and I just, for various reasons, you know, family, where I live, a whole lot of reasons I didn't want to do that. And I probably wasn't particularly good at explaining my reasons to say no. And the management at the time really wanted me to say yes. And so that just set us on a path of kind of collision. So I would, you know, the ABC has been so wonderful for me to work at in so many ways. Like I, it is, it is really great to work with you know, most people there are doing excellent work day in, day out because they believe in public service broadcasting and it is a joy to work in a place where everyone has a values base around that. But it's also a big bureaucracy that um, doesn't always work the way you want it to work. And so unfortunately for me, it actually was really difficult um, to navigate having a, a young family. And it, it ultimately meant I had to spend a lot of time on a plane, which was my choice. That's fine. To travel to Sydney and Melbourne quite a bit, you know, as in a national role eventually. Um, but that was sort of the trade-off for me and I was happy to do that. So thinking back to that role that you were denied – unless you, you, you went back full-time, do you reckon you could have done it part-time? Do you still believe Of course that, I could have could done be? it part-time. <laughs> um, so do, do you think management's views on those things have changed? Yes, they now? have. It wouldn't happen right. now. Um, uh, look, to be honest, I still don't know why it happened. I still don't understand because I'd been excellent at my job. That, To be honest, that's why it was so upsetting to me was mm. that if I was a slacker, and there are some in the ABC, and if I didn't do a good job and all of those things, but I was good at my job, I always exceeded expectations. I got an exceeds on every performance appraisal I ever did. I ticked every KPI. So that was the bit that was hard for me. It was like, come on, guys, I give you my all. And even when I'm part-time, you know I'm going to give you everything I've got. I just, (laughs) yeah. And And I was like, this makes me a better programmer because on my days off when I'm at home with my child, I'm I actually have the radio on and I'm listening like a listener and I'm listening in the car and I'm not in meetings all the time. And I actually am a better programmer because I'm living in the world. (laughs) I mean, I'm standing in a bank queue and I'm at the school gate and all the things that normal people do. And so I found it very difficult to understand what was happening to me um, and, you know, didn't have any support. You know, I, I, HR were just like, no. So, it, yeah, it was messy and yucky. And on reflection, because I was so hurt and I do wear my heart on my sleeve, I didn't handle it as well as I could have either because it was really hard to be dispassionate and to come in with the logical argument by that point because mm. I was just too upset and every conversation I kind of was so frustrated and, and angry. And so, you know, I eventually probably wasn't handling it the best I could either. Yeah, and that makes sense. You've invested your life into a place and you want to continue to do that but just in a different way. You're right, things have changed. Like the future of work is just so different because COVID-19 came along, we thought, okay, this is actually possible to do it this way. We can make decisions when we're not in person. We can job share. We can work from home. We can have a hybrid working from home. Yeah, you're not a slacker if you work from home. Yeah. All the time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you close, as you said earlier, you close the lid or you close the laptop on this 20-year career at the ABC and um, you startup dead set studios so a bunch of people that listen to the do landers have their own business um or maybe thinking of of doing something different from what they have done previously 
what what is your advice to people um, about you know what what do they need to do to change course or um, jump off that straight line and curve off to the right or left? Oh, I, I mean, I feel like I'm still figuring it out and I'm not um, in the point where I can offer any advice. But I guess, you know, what I would say is it's going like that first year is going to be hard and you're going to at different points in time not want to keep going. Um, and you have to come back to your sort of North Star a bit and go, okay, what's my end goal? Like where am I trying to get? And because all of these things that seem difficult and insurmountable today – um, are they worth trying to overcome in order to get to this point? And so when I decided to start the production company, um, you know, my, my end goal is, you know, I, I run a small team of kind of five people that are making amazing content, and but that's going to take three or four years to build. And so what do I need to do at the beginning in phase one, phase two, phase three? I haven't planned, I mean, I have a vision and a strategy in my head, but I don't I tend not to plan this is what I'm doing for the three months, six months, 12 months because I just feel like I have to move with the market and see what opportunities come up and jump on things as they arise. So I think my advice too is not, not to hold too firmly to your plan because I think yeah. then you can um, miss opportunities or or ways to pivot in a different direction or those sorts of things. Um don't do all the stupid things that I did, which is go, oh, I'm not going to get set up on zero straight away and I'm not going to because I don't even know if I'm doing this for real. And Get all your systems and processes in place at the beginning because I've literally redone them three times. Right. <laughs> yep. So yep. get all that set up. Find a good, you know, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm really doing this and so I'm not going to go and get a bookkeeper and all of that yet. But actually – the value that they can bring quite quickly when they know what they're doing and you you don't can be quite instrumental and sort of like who's your little team around you, even if you can't afford a team, which I couldn't in the first couple of months. I was like, I just have to work and get a, a revenue pipeline going. But then who's in your little team that can give you four hours help a week or six hours help a week? I'm really bad at getting help. Like I tend to just – um like in so many aspects of my life, when I look back at when I, my kids were young, you know, I didn't, I didn't get nanny help, and I didn't outsource a cleaner, and like I just make things difficult for myself. <laughs> but now I'm sort of like I need to get some help, and it's worth paying for the help in order for me to do the bigger picture things. So get the little bits of help that allow you to then work more effectively in your business on the things that you can really bring value to in business development or the high level strategic work, et cetera, and then give the bookkeeping to somebody for $30 an hour, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's taken me, I've had to kind of, you know, talk myself into that too. Great, great advice. Speaking of advice, uh, what free advice would you have for a couple of middle-aged guys trying to grow their podcast audience? <laughs> I think you're very canny that you're getting all this advice for free by asking me on your podcast. It's very canny. We're strategic. <laughs> if we're nothing else, we're strategic, Kelly. <laughs> Look, you know, I am really honest with people and I work with a lot of um, – you know, brands and organisations who are starting at the beginning of their podcast journey, but also lots of independents who just want to do a show. And it is hard in Australia. So if your goal is 
make 50 grand a year out of your podcast, I'm probably going to tell you that's not possible. Um, But what I can tell you is there are a number of um, small things you can do to try to get profile for your podcast. And the first thing is like make a good show. I think people forget that bit sometimes because they're like, I'm just I'm going to do all the social content and I'm going to get some profile on the apps and I'm going to get an ad deal and all of that's great. But the show's got to be good if you want to find an audience. And a lot of people skip that step now because they're a big fancy influencer or a celebrity and they can just sort of trade off that. But I think that's a short-term attitude. So decide what your show is, be really clear on who the audience is and what a good format for that audience is. Like if your audience is, you know, super busy, they don't want a daily show that goes for an hour. Um, If your audience is want something really expansive and takes their mind to another place, then they might want a long deep dive uh, sort of show. So being smart about those choices is good. And then the second part of it is every podcast starts with an audience of zero. So unlike radio and television, where if you put a show on there, there's a ready-made audience ready to listen, you have to start with no listeners and slowly build it. And so it takes time. So the one thing I say to people is going to take your time to build this audience because a lot of organizations are like, we want the quick wins and are we going to get, you know, 20,000 downloads in week one? I'm like, well, no, you're actually not. Um, but but podcasting is a sticky and deep connection. So compared to short form video or social media spend, Yes, that will get more eyeballs on it, but for for 10 seconds. Whereas if someone engages in your podcast, they're listening to 40 or 50 minutes of content. So it's a really sticky, deep engagement, which can work for brands really well. But you've got to slowly build that audience and start to engage with your audience, encourage them to subscribe or follow you. You know, if you can get some profile with the apps and there are many different ones, people tend to just think about Apple or Spotify. But there are loads of different apps that, you know, if you have an interesting guest or an interesting piece of content, they might profile it for you. Um And then thinking about, you know, how you seed that content with the community you're going for, you know. So for me, with Curveball, which is a leadership, you know, business kind of podcast, so we're, you know, our audience is leaders and CEOs and people in that sphere, we do some newsletter content on LinkedIn because that's the platform where those people are hanging out or we might try and get um, a business newsletter to feature it or an article in Smart Company because we know that's where that audience is. And then, you know, all of that takes time and resource. So my last piece of advice to people is, Be realistic about what you can achieve because it is so time consuming, you know, making curveball pretty much independently on my own with, you know, two friends helping. Um, It's a lot of work. You know, I'm used to working with big production teams of, you know, there might be three to five people working on that show. There's five people working on conversations, for example. Um, So when you're doing it on your own, you, you also have to be realistic about what you can fit into your life. And so bite off what you can chew, I think, is my other you know, a lot of organizations go, right, we're going to do a podcast and we're going to do it 52 weeks of the year. And I'm like, no, you're not, because that's going to exhaust everybody. And by episode 12, you're all going to be on the floor. So how about we start with three series of 10 and we kind of plot those across the year and we see how it goes. And then we've got some time in between the series to properly plan the next one. And, and so I try to give people advice around matching their level of resource to the intensity of the release schedule. 
great advice. And what's your advice to people out there who have come from big enterprise and now going out solo or starting something small? Because as you just described, you're used to things being big. You've got the structure and infrastructure all around you. And now you've got a, as you said earlier on, you're the accountant, you're the CEO, mm. also the you know, you everything down the, down the chain, the IT expert. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot because I don't have enough sort of automation going in a way. Like I'm looking at how do I scale different things that I'm doing because I'm kind of using a manual repetitive process to do stuff. And so trying to explore what tools are out there and putting a bit of a stack, to, like your tech stack together of you know, what kind of tools you'll use to communicate with clients and is there a way that you can um, have multiple production schedules that you're just changing each time and you have a templated approach. It's all that sort of stuff and I haven't nailed it yet. You know, I'm still experimenting with, like I'm just on an endless um, quest to find some system where I can store scripts and audio and have collaborative documents that actually works because, you know, the Microsoft OneDrive suite has certain issues and Google has certain issues and Dropbox has certain issues and like they're all, they all have setbacks and drawbacks. So it's, it's around trying to find those tools that can help you automate things in the business, I think. But I certainly am not the expert. And in fact, if anyone has it figured out, please contact me. <laughs> Talking about contacting you. So we also have a bunch of business leaders and people involved in the, the business community um, across Australia. What can Dead Set Studios do for those organisations? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a range of things. Dead Set Studios can give you a small amount of strategic advice up front where we ex we can do, you know, literally a two to three hour workshop with you where we say, this is what the podcast landscape looks like in Australia and beyond if your market is global. Um, these are the sorts of people are listening. This is how they're listening, where they're listening. Um, this is the opportunity that I can see for your organisation. You fit into this category or genre. And so you should think about your podcast in this way and trying to help them come up with a format that's a bit more complicated than two people sit at a table and talk to each other, as riveting as that is, as you know. Um, but trying to come up with a format that works for them, you know, is it documentary based? Is it, you know, a panel show? Is it a quiz show? Um, it could be all sorts of things that are not just two people talk to each other. And so we can do things like that. And then that just opens people's eyes and it stops them making a lot of early mistakes. So the, the yeah. one bit of feedback from clients I usually get is, oh, we wish we knew this six months ago. Because um, I get a lot of clients who've, who've spent six months doing a podcast and they're struggling and then they come to us and they're like, oh, if only we knew this and this. Because we can advise on this is, this is how you should resource this. This is what it would take to do this sort of show. This is kind of the cost per episode you'd be looking at. Or this is the workflow and production schedule you would need. So we can help people put production schedules together. But then at the other end of it, we run full productions for companies. So you might be... I don't know, Australia Post, and you say, we'd love to do a podcast. And so I'll work with Australia Post on a whole concept. I haven't done this yet. Australia Post, if you want one, hit me up. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we then make it for them, like in collaboration with what the story sure. they're trying to tell. But we actually yeah. make it because we have people who know how to do that. And then we do training like podcast boot camp workshops that go for a day where we train people up. Um, and so we can we can kind of compare, um, expand and contract the offer to what suits the organisation. 
Nice. Well, no doubt the phone's going to ring off the hook now. <laughs> is hey, that another question. Doolander on the phone? It is. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, you've been super generous with your time. Thank you so much. And thanks for all of, of your insights and sharing your story with us. Last question. What's next on your to-do list? Um, it's really around original shows, so creating our own content where we own the concept and the story and the intellectual property around that format or that story, and then we are commissioned to create that for, you know, a global platform, a BBC or an Audible or a Spotify or whoever it is. So starting to think about that is something I haven't really had capacity to do in sort of the first year of business, but that is absolutely where we we will take it in the second year of business because that's where my expertise actually is in a lot of ways, is creating really great concepts and a very clear and distinctive format that actually gets an audience. So there'll be a bit more of that. But I'm also, you know, I'm enjoying doing some consulting with different organisations as well. The thing I'm most excited about is starting to build out my team because, you know, I've now got a couple of producers who are doing some regular work for me. And so I'm, you know, training them up in the way um, best practice podcast production looks. And so getting to work with some new up and comers as well as, you know, some um sound engineers and producers who've done this for a long time but I'm excited about working with the next crop of people who could become you know dead set studios of the future because I think you know giving young producers those tools and that expertise is exciting and actually I've got a last question it's just about what are the innovations you're seeing in the field of podcasting you talked a little bit earlier about smart speakers and things like that Mm. Um, themes We've seen true crime done to death. Yeah, um, maybe true people are still interested in that. Is not going anywhere. Um, I think like scripted content, so fictionalized content. In the same way, we're happy to watch a movie. What does a movie for your ears sound mm. like? And we've seen some great experimentation from people like Q Code, who did the series Carrier. Um, Dirty Diana, you know, Gimlet did the Homecoming series that became a television series starring Julia Roberts. Um, they did a show called Sandra as well. That was a scripted piece. So I think that's exciting. And that I'm really interested in that mashup of scripted with something else. So you, so Crossbred, which was a, a mm. comedy musical that the ABC did, uh, six parts, satirical but also with music, right? Megan Washington and Chris Ryan wrote all the music. And so it's part, you know, part musical, part comedy, part fictional series where you're immersed in this strange and excellent world. And so I think that idea of entertainment in your ears is big. And then lastly, I'm really interested in that utilitarian piece. Um, Like how do we make audio and voice and AI work for us in a way. I had a terrible battle with RSI a few years ago and so I started using voice technology a lot more, Dragon Dictation and just Siri on my phone. I don't type texts, I just voice them, which is if you ever get a text from me, it usually doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, But (laughs) I'm really interested in, you know, hey Google, tell me how I'm going on my power bill this month 
and a voice sort of telling you, well, you're at 30% of usage this month and that compares in this way to last month or whatever that might look like in the future. So how how Amazon, uh, you know, Echo or Amazon Alexa or Siri or Google can all be used in a ubiquitous way, but the voice that you actually hear is conversational and feels like a friend and less like a robotic Siri voice. I think that's the future. Like you might hear Hamish and Andy tell you how your power bill is going or something like that Um, or Sylvester Stallone or, you know, whoever, people with interesting voices, Sean Connery. Um, So that would be, I think, where some interesting things will take place. The other thing that's really, um, I think, experimental at the moment but is really shaping up nicely is the blend between audiobook and podcast. So Malcolm Gladwell I think is really at the forefront of this in his production company Pushkin, the way they're blending what we used to call an audiobook where someone just read the text and now what he's doing is he'll read some but then he'll throw to some tape or an interview that he's done or you know something that's happened that he's writing about and I think that's a really interesting space to to explore and um, no one really in Australia has done that yet it's mostly just happening in the US so I'm interested in what that might look like. Amazing. Yeah, fascinating. Such a fascinating space. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure to hear your story. And given what you've done throughout your life, we're absolutely uh, excited to see what you create next. Thank you. And congratulations on the Doolanders because, you know, doing any amount of episodes is a lot of work, but to get to 20, 30 episodes, 40 episodes, that's really fantastic. So I'm always like hats off if you've made a thing because making a thing is hard. Um, and anyone who makes a thing in a regular way, you know, I, I'm always, um, it, it makes me smile to see people doing that. So congratulations. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Kelly. Episode 39. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. See you, Kelly. Well, Blake, that was Kelly. Amazing. I love the fact that she's been this creative force, been a person that's been in a position to bring to life podcasts like Conversations, Crossbred, Ladies, we need to talk. Just amazing. Yeah. And incredibly brave to give up on the security of the ABC and to go, no, you know what, I'm going to back myself here and I'm going to go not into another safe job but into a high-risk, high-reward job that she has to then completely do herself. Yeah, create her own thing. As she said, it's just her and... She closed that laptop on that 20-year career. No song and dance and farewell party because she was in lockdown. Yeah. Starts up this new business. Starts up a brand new podcast. Yeah. And Curveball. And listeners, if you haven't listened, have a listen. Um, She's got some amazing stories, amazing guests. But you're right. So so brave. And uh, the reality is she's so talented that can't wait to see what she does next. She's talented, but you also know that she'll hustle to make it work and she's proven over time, hustled her way into journalism, hustled her way onto a chopper. Uh, I, yeah, I think when you combine those 
two key ingredients of talent and hard work. We wouldn't want to – she would never bank on it, but I think we can be pretty comfortable sitting back here saying, yep, she's going she's gonna to see out her dream. No, no doubt about that. Talking about dreams, mm-hmm. our next guest yeah. had a dream. He did. What was that dream? That dream was to <laughs> was to write songs, perform in a band. Yep. And that dream comes true. It did. Who is our next guest? Our next guest is Danny Walsh. And he is a renewable energy engineer, a wind engineer, a festival artist director, yep. musician, mm-hmm. and a songwriter. He's all of those things... And more. You'll hear all about that in next week's episode. Episode 40. See you then, Doolanders. Ciao.